Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, we come before you and thank you for drawing us together as you have. I pray that you would lead us into all truth and that you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. We've covered much in our last lessons. We witnessed the rise and fall of the Antichrist's world system and also the glorious return of Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, in which he defeated the earthly forces that were opposed to God. We saw the Antichrist and the false prophet cast into the lake of fire and Satan bound for a period of a thousand years. We learned of the first resurrection in which the righteous were raised to life to reign with Christ for those thousand years, and of Satan then being released to deceive the nations once more, causing a final conflict on the earth. We saw his ultimate end in the lake of fire where he will be tormented forever along with those who have served him. We saw the great white throne judgment in which the people of the earth will be judged out of the books, and all those whose names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. That place, John reveals, is known as the second death, not a place of destruction, but a place of misery and torment, of separation from God's life-giving presence forever. Over the last few lessons, John has shown us the ultimate defeat and doom of the wicked. And now in chapter 1, he begins to show us what awaits the righteous. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The old is gone, the new has come. John proclaims that this new heaven and new earth are kainos in Greek, meaning that they are new in form and substance. They're of an entirely new kind. More than the mere restoration of what once was, God has brought about something that is entirely new. And notice there is no more sea. Three quarters of our present earth is covered by water and the constant motion of the seas affects almost every aspect of life from the weather and the ecosystems to politics. However, it will not be so with the new earth. But before you begin to worry about the loss of your favorite seafood or vacation spot, we need to understand the symbolism that's present here. The sea is not a happy place in Scripture. In Revelation, the sea represents the place of the spiritually dead. Remember that the beast came out of the sea, and Revelation 20 verse 13 told us that the sea gave up the dead that were in it at the time of the second resurrection, the resurrection of those who did not follow Christ. 
In Jewish thought, the sea represents something uncontrollable, dangerous, and even evil. In John's day, people hated and feared the sea. You see, they did not yet possess the compass, and so their ships would hug the coast as much as possible to avoid the unknown threats awaiting them in the depths of the sea. But the sea was also a symbol of separation from all that was known and loved. John would have felt that deeply isolated as he was here on his island prison. So when he says that there was no more sea, his readers would have immediately understood what that meant, that there would be nothing hostile to God or dangerous to man in the new world. It would all be changed. It would all be safe, secure and holy, and it would be a place of glad reunions. Then John sees the new Jerusalem, the holy city, dressed as a bride, carefully prepared for her husband. This holy city is the dwelling place of God, his people and his angels. This is the city that Abraham was looking for in Hebrews 11 verse 10, the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Everything has been made ready. This is the place that Jesus said he was going away to prepare for us in John 14. This is a direct fulfillment of scripture in that there is a holy city for us to dwell in. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. From creation until now, God's desire and plan has always been to dwell with us and we with him. That's why he chose Israel. That's why he gave Israel the tabernacle and the temple. That's why he came, dying for our sins, to reconcile man to God, to enable us to dwell in his presence once more. And God will not only be with us, he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more more death or sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, for the old ways will have passed away. What a glorious day that will be. God makes some powerful statements here in verses 5 through 8. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. 
As God reveals that he is the one who makes everything new, he declares that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And it is as if God is saying, listen, I'm telling you the truth. I'm everything, the beginning and the end. I began it all and I will end it all. There is no one besides me. The alpha was the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the omega was the last. And this statement introduces us to what is known as the alpha and omega principle. The Alpha and Omega Principle maintains that everything that happened in the first three chapters of Genesis is now brought to completion, to resolution, in the last three chapters of Revelation. We'll discuss this further in a future lesson once we've covered all that God revealed to John about the New Jerusalem. But God makes a promise here, a solemn promise in verse 6. He says, To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Nothing motivates mankind more than thirst, and so John uses this to symbolize our greatest need. God will satisfy the thirst of the longing heart and quench our deepest needs from his eternal spring. It is as if God says, I freely offer you everything you need for life. It is yours for the taking if you overcome, if you follow me to the end. Perhaps the most beautiful revelation here is that this living water will be given to us freely, without cost, because Jesus Christ paid the price. And also, it is given without measure, for God gives abundantly beyond everything we can ask or think. This is the living water that Jesus spoke of to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, saying in verse 13, Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God also promises an inheritance to those who overcome. He promises, I will be your God and you will be my son. But the implication is that if we draw back, if we don't have faith, if we choose to follow the desires of the flesh and the ways of the world, it proves that he's not really our Lord. And those who do not belong to him have only the second death to look forward to. Not all truly believe, not all have his favor, and not all will be allowed into the holy city. Look at verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Notice that the text does not stop at cowardice and unbelief, but it also describes what those things result in. They lead to vile or disgusting behaviors, murder, sexual immorality, the practice of magic and engagement with the occult. Remember that the Greek word used here is related to our word for pharmacy and implies the misuse of drugs as well. 
False worship and lying are also listed here. People who lead such lives of unbelief will be separated from God for all eternity. Now, I appreciate that any reasonable person might be wondering by now, but what about when I sin? For even as a Christian, I've done things that I have come to understand were wrong. Does that mean that there's no place for me with God? Does that mean that the fiery lake of burning sulfur is my destination too? And the answer to that is a resounding no. All of us, even as Christians, sin at one time or another. We all fall off of God's path, but we repent and get back on it. What is at issue here is our walk, the habit of our life. The Greek word often used to refer to our walk in Scripture is peripateo, and it really refers to our lifestyle, to the ongoing pattern of our lives, not our occasional lapses. It might help you to think of the difference in this way. Those of us who have Facebook accounts know that if you take enough snapshots, there are bound to be some unflattering or embarrassing pictures of you that get posted, which you then have to go and quickly untag. The same is true in our lives. There will be times when we recognize that our actions or reactions are not what they should be. We can delete those by acknowledging what we've done and by asking God to forgive us and to change us so that we do not do the thing again and so that we begin to look more like him. But John is not talking here about a random snapshot, an occasional lapse here. He is talking more about the movie of our lives, the consistent pattern of our choices and our actions over a long period of time. Let me give you a personal example. My son went to a very liberal university and we were invited to attend Parents' Day. During the dinner, my husband and I were at the table with two highly educated computer scientists. It was all very intimidating. One worked in the field of artificial intelligence and the other in complicated systems of programming for medical records. And as I sat there, I thought, oh Lord, please don't let them ask me what I do. Almost immediately, they turned to me and asked, so what do you do? I haltingly told them, oh, I, uh, I'm a teacher. But I didn't tell them that I was in ministry or that I was actually a Bible teacher. In that very moment, I felt the Lord convicting me for my lack of courage. I'd been mentally comparing myself to them and felt ashamed of what I did by comparison. My heart sank, realizing what I had done and why. Well, well, God in his kindness immediately gave me the opportunity to correct it when they asked, Oh, that's wonderful. What do you teach? Not surprisingly, as soon as I told them that I was a Bible teacher, they smiled stiffly and turned away never to talk to us again. But I felt better about it, actually. It was wrong for me to have hidden what I did. And it caused me great anguish to know that I had chosen social comfort over acknowledging Christ and that I'd been ashamed to show whose I was and whom I served. 
I asked the Lord for forgiveness and I determined to always see myself as a messenger of the King and never to be ashamed of or try to hide that, no matter who I speak to. Though I acted with cowardice that evening, it does not mean that I am a coward deserving of the second death. The moment I recognized what I had done, I repented. And as long as cowardice is not the pattern of my daily lifestyle, that one act does not make me a coward. It just makes me forgiven. Perhaps you'll see yourself in one of these other descriptions in verse 8. The good news is that there is no sin too great for God to forgive if we repent. But it's important that we understand that repentance is not just about being sorry for what we've done. The Greek word for repentance Metanoeo implies that we realize our sin is taking us in a different direction than God desires us to go, and that as we come to our senses, we not only admit our guilt and ask for forgiveness, but we change our direction also. We turn back and begin to follow God's way. Christ is in the business of transforming lives, and we need to cooperate with him. In truth, the very fact that our lives do change is really proof that he is our Lord. God has more to show John, though, in verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Remember that Mystery Babylon was also referred to as both a woman and a city before she was destroyed. And now that the new Jerusalem has come, we can understand what a grotesque counterfeit that other woman and city was. In no way does she compare to the holy city of God, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. John emphasizes the radiant brilliance of the place, a city that sparkled like a diamond shining with the glory of God. In verse 12, John begins to describe the outside of the city. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You see that both Israel and the church are represented here in the gates and the foundations. All are part of the bride, the lamb's wife. The Bible is one story. The God of the Old Testament who revealed himself to the Jewish people is the same God of the New Testament who revealed himself to the apostles and to the church. Twelve in scripture is the number associated with government and order, and the repetition of that number and multiples of it speaks to how the Lord rules in perfect order and harmony. 
Verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. Remember that to measure anything in Scripture denoted ownership over the thing that was measured. And so we understand that this city belongs to God. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia. That's 1,400 miles or 2,200 kilometers in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its walls and it was 144 cubits, about 200 feet or 65 meters thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony or agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian or ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase or turquoise, the eleventh jacinth and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, like transparent glass. Perfectly proportioned, the city is as high as it is wide as it is long. The recurring multiples of 12 here are symbolic of order and completeness. But if taken literally, the city is truly huge in its dimensions. The city is walled, which speaks to the fact that all who are within her are secure. The walls are said to be made of clear jasper, which today we would translate to be diamond, and they measure about 200 feet thick. The many precious stones are reminders that this city is a bride, adorned with the most beautiful treasures to showcase her beauty and the love her bridegroom has for her. The entry gates are each made from a single pearl, and the streets are made of gold. Perhaps you've heard people speak of heaven's pearly gates and streets of gold before. This is where the terms actually come from. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. John is clear that in God's presence there is no need for the temple, nor is there need for light, for the glory of God Almighty illuminates that place. This is what the prophet Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 60 verses 19 to 20, where he said, The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light and your God your glory. Your sun shall no 
longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. Evidently, there is continual access into the city through the gates, because John describes the redeemed coming from all nations, and even the highest and mightiest of them, the kings of the earth, bring all their honour and glory to him. Everyone and everything worship him. How beautiful to learn that its gates will never be shut, for there will be no night there. In John's day, walled cities closed their gates at night as a protection from the evil that dwelt in the darkness. But here there is no longer need of that protection, for nothing impure can ever enter heaven. As verse 27 makes clear, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Once again, we see the Bible allows no option for the idea that all roads somehow lead to God. If we are to enter his presence, it is only through Jesus Christ that we can come. Jesus himself told us this in John 14, 6, saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life that are able to enter there. For it is only by his blood that our sins and our shame can be washed away. What a beautiful dwelling place this is. Paul declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And here we see John's attempt to describe the indescribable. Nothing does it justice. So it's no wonder that John resorted to telling us what is not there. And I want to close today by reminding us of what some of those things are. There is no more sea, according to verse 1. All that threatens, all that is associated with evil and danger is done away with. There is no more death, mourning, crying or pain, as it says in verse 4. No more tears, nothing to cause sorrow or regret. There is no temple, as it says in verse 22, because we're in his presence, unhindered by sin or distance. He dwells among us and we dwell in him and we will worship him without ceasing. Verse 23 says that there is no need for the sun or moon to give us light for he is our light. There is going to be no more night. Verse 25 no darkness, no need for protection, nothing to create fear or to cause alarm. There is no more impurity, shame or deceit, according to verse 27, for he has made us holy as he is holy. Can you imagine the sense of belonging and well-being in such a place? Secure in his presence, all aspects of evil removed, small and great alike will bring their gifts to lay at his feet and worship him forever. What a blessed day that will be. Next time, we'll learn even more of this wonderful place. And believe me, you won't want to miss it. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you so much that you are indeed the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Lord, thank you that we have much to look forward to in your presence. And it is all because of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth and the life. For no one comes to you but by him. Thank you so much for Jesus. Lord, thank you that we belong to you and we will dwell with you in that glorious place. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.